Good morning, Grace Chapel. If you have children this morning between preschool age and fifth grade, you head out the door to my left, to your right, and you will be met out in the hallway and go for a wonderful time. Uh, we're going to have a good time together too, right? Okay, some of you think so. Good. We finished this morning. We finished the reading and the study of Jesus' words uh, to His body, the church, of which we make a big part. But we're going to continue exploring, aren't we? We're going to continue exploring the applications of these seven letters to the, to the early Christians and what it means to us later Christians. We're going to keep doing that. And here's one, here's one perspective, one application on Jesus' letters that I believe are 100% applicable to Grace Chapel right now. Do you ever get tired of doing church? Do you ever get tired <clears throat> of being church? You know, the way, the way we've always been, the way we've always done church, just day in and day out, keeping on top, all, all that's required. And do you ever feel that sometimes we just do the same things over and, and over again? Um, like, do you, ever, do you ever wake up and think something's missing in your life uh, spiritually? So, what do churches typically do? Well, let's change things up, right? Let's, let's, let's change it up. Let's discover something new, something more relevant than we seem to think that we are. And what I, what I get from these letters, and the two that we're going to get today, to today also, what Jesus drills down to over and over again in these encouragements and in these challenges is that often what God expects out of you and I as the church is to keep doing what we've been doing, to hang in there. Uh, it's not for nothing at all. As long as it's what Scripture declares is true, you and I need to keep doing it day in, no matter how hard or difficult it gets. It's called, Jesus calls it <clears throat> in these letters, endurance. Did you catch that word? Over and over again. It's a sign of maturity. Doing something new isn't necessarily a sign of maturity. It's, it's hanging in there is a sign of maturity. It's evidence that you're an overcomer. It's, it's conquering the ever-present urge to find deeper mysteries and fulfillment and contentment out of life, and all of those typically involve some sort of compromise. And Jesus has outlined this over and over again. He's going to hit it again today because <clears throat> you and I, whether we admit it or not, we're probably not even aware unless somebody comes up to us and points it out. You and I are deeply influenced by the course of this present time, by the country we live in, by the society that we uh, rub shoulders with other people in, by, by the current, have you noticed, the current ever-strengthening trend to be progressive? <laughs> like, it's, it's in the church, too. Like, and we sometimes associate that need of, of doing new and different things with pleasing God. We do that. That's, you know, it's like, it's like uh, we say what we want to say and then, well, and let's pray. Let's pray about it, right? That God would agree with what we, we've already decided. Or, or maybe the reality is really more we need to be pleased, we, we want to keep people's interest. We want to keep people coming back because people drive this thing, right? 
I find often that doing something new can be refreshing. I enjoy it as, as, as much as the next person. And, it, and it, there's a place for doing things new just to refresh and to come alive again. <clears throat> but isn't it really more often about ourselves? to help make us feel like we as a church are relevant in our culture, which is seeing us as less relevant, um, and accomplishing something important, uh, making more of a difference. But often what I read here is what God expects uh, is for us to hang in there by doing what He's already gifted so many of you to do, and you are doing it by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God indwelling your, 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 your body and your soul, and you're, you're doing it. Keep doing it. Hang in there is what I hear. Loving Him and loving people, which is sharing the gospel message, God's gospel message of His payment for our sin through Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin debt. That's the gospel. And it results in worship of Him. What we just did, what we will continue to do as we look into His Word, what we're going to continue to do when we go out the door, we're just going to hang in there. Does that sound good? And Jesus encourages the church to do that. There is no need to move away from what is central, even when it doesn't seem novel or cutting edge compared to what other people are doing. Like the idea that there must be this deeper experience to be had because this can't be it what we're doing right now. This can't be all that there is in this life. Well, you'll notice that the false teachers and the false apostles and the false prophets that are all over the airways today, and you can watch them on YouTube, please don't, they espouse this new revelation. And it emphasizes emotion. It emphasizes feelings. It emphasizes an experience all three of which are very unreliable, extremely fickle, and all changing with the seasons. If there's a message I receive from Jesus' letters in Revelation, it's this. Do not trust in anything else other than God's gospel through Jesus Christ. And that's it. So let's get into it. Next church is, the sixth church is Philadelphia. We're going to call them Philly for short. Revelation chapter 3, it's verses 7 through 13. If you want to turn in your Bibles, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. The words of the Holy One. That's a title for God. Jesus Christ is God. The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Do you ever question who really is in control? I know all of you parents with little children ask yourself that all the time. Am I the captain of this ship? (laughs) No, you're not. Okay, just clear that up. But in your life, who, who is really opening and shutting doors of opportunity for you? Who is really opening and shutting doors of danger, of, of success, or even of failure? Jesus tells them, I know that you have but little power, as he goes on in the verse here, 
and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What really matters? You know that it's me, Jesus says. It's me who opens and shuts doors. I know it doesn't look like it sometimes, but it's me. And that understanding, Jesus says, that understanding alone that it's me has been enough to get you through this difficult life so far. And it will continue to get you through the rest of this life as God graces you breath. And we see open door in other places in Scripture. In particular, we see it in in one time when, when Paul describes an open door that God gave to him, um, an opportunity for further missionary work. It's in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here it's referring to the entrance into God's kingdom. We're talking about salvation here. And Christ alone can provide salvation to human beings. No one, not even the local synagogue, as we're going to read here, and we've seen in some of the other churches, not even the Roman emperor himself will be able to keep anyone from entering the kingdom of God because Jesus opens that door and he shuts it. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. How would you like to belong to that? So what synagogue are you going to? I'm going to synagogue Satan. (laughs) But of course, they don't know it. They have no idea that that's where they worship and learn and are taught. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet. Wow! Before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus challenges hypocrisy. Even in places that say they are all about Him or worship God and they're all about God. Jesus challenges the hypocrisy of anyone who claims to be one of God's children but in fact are liars. He's referring in this particular place to the Jewish community in Philadelphia who have rejected Him as the Messiah, expelled a lot of these Christians, Christ ones, from their synagogues, and he says they're members of the synagogue of Satan, and we saw that back in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, so we won't go into that in detail. You can, you can listen to it online. You see, you can be born in any country on this planet. You can, have, you can be born into any family name, no matter how religious. Your, your great-great-great-grandfathers and all the way up to your present dad could have been pastors, You can be born into that kind of a family name. You can be the member of any church in the United States of America, including Grace Chapel, but if you reject Jesus or one of his brothers or sisters, that's what he says here, one day you will be forced to bow your knee in acknowledgement. Paul said in Galatians 6, verses 14 through 16, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is what I live for. For neither circumcision, being born a Jew, counts for anything, or uncircumcision, being born as a Gentile, as most of us in this room were, but a new creation, that's what counts. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, not the Israel of Satan that Jesus calls them here. In the end, Jesus will reverse all suffering, all the misrepresentation that's put upon His church today. He'll make all the pretenders worship at the feet of true people of God. It's, it's, this, it's this ironic fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies where they didn't realize there was any church coming, but it was prophesied, and you and I get to live it today. One of those is in Isaiah, and it's Isaiah 49, verse 23, and here's what Isaiah the prophet says under the inspiration of God. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queen, queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow to you. Sound familiar? I think we just read this about the church. They shall bow to you and lick the dust of your feet. That's humility. (laughs) Then you will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then later in chapter 60, verse 14 in Isaiah, um, God says, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow, low, bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord. We're going to see this later in, in, the, in, the, in the last group. They shall call you city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. That's pretty identical to what Jesus has just said to his church. And those prophecies back there in Isaiah are given to a true Israel, right? A true Israel, who the Jews in Asia Minor in most of these seven churches that we've looked at think they are because of their physical birth as children of Abraham. But actually, it's about the new Israel made up of all the Jews and Gentiles in the world who are born again by spiritual birth into God's family who trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's you and me, right? Okay, well, let's let's find out. Well, let's see what kind of evidence is required and proves that you and I are in this group. Look at this next verse, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. There's the hanging in there again. I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And some take this verse as evidence that true believers will not go through the great seven-year tribulation that is to come that goes on into the rest of uh, the book of Revelation that we went through a number of years ago. I do hope that that is true, that we are kept from that horrible, horrendous day. Regardless, here Jesus promises spiritual protection. For those who have kept his command to persevere, to endure, to hang in there, it's not physical protection. I know we like to think that. I mean, I do. Not always. This phrase that Jesus uses here is really astounding. Keep you from. It's a a Greek phrase, to keep you from. It's used only one other time in the New Testament and it's found in John 17, chapter 17, verse 15. 
And there again, it's Jesus who uses it. And he's, he's in the garden the night before he sacrifices his life for the sins of the world. And he's praying specifically for his disciples. <clears throat> and in that verse, he prays to God the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but here comes that same phrase, but that you keep them from the evil one. And one of those disciples that he's praying for, Peter, who later was tempted and fell, but restored. Remember, he was restored on the beach, the breakfast for fish. He writes about this protection later in, in his second letter, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 12. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter's like, I'm a witness. And to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That's our world today. It's swirling all around us, and we're called to endure. Jesus reminds them in verse 11, next, uh, Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. It's getting worse, but I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Many of the Philadelphian Christians would have been forced out of the local synagogues for their uh, faith in Jesus Christ, for declaring him as the coming Messiah. They also lived in a region that history tells us was prone to earthquakes, and they were often forced out of their homes to live outside of the city. Never again would they have to leave their place of worship due to persecution or their place of residence due to earthquakes. And later in, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which talks about the end of things and what is it going to be like, this, this new heaven and this new earth and, and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and earth and heaven coming together and there's the, lion, there's the lamb and there's the, the, the God on his throne and the celestial sea and, and all those amazing things. Later, later we're told in those chapters, that God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. There is no temple in the future. God and the Lamb are the temple. And we are going to be pillars, symbolically speaking, in that temple. We have a home. <laughs> and we're never going to leave. Verse 12, and I, will, and I will write on him, this is the person that hangs in there and endures, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from <clears throat> God out of heaven, and my own new name. Three names. How would you like to be given a triune name from the triune God? Overcome. I'll see you there. Can there be a greater, more secure name than to have the name of God? Our given family name uh, here on earth, it's nice, right? Well, some of you may not like it, but most of us like our, our family name, our, our, our given name. And for some of you, it opens doors here on this planet because of what it represents, 
what it means, the networking that's gone on. For some of you, it, it, in a very limited way, it holds sway. Um, it, it gives privilege, provides privilege. But our name, by which we are called by God, that's an eternal legacy of astronomical proportion. We believers, we're told in, in, in Revelation chapter 7, in chapter 14, and in chapter 22, we're, we're told that we believers receive the name of God. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 13 and 14 that people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, unbelievers receive the name of the beast, Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To this church, Jesus offers no rebuke. Did you see that? I want to be in the church of Philadelphia. But only praise. Ironically, the risen Christ promises the most to the weakest congregation. This is something to take note of. Never despise true humility. Don't ever fret over the perceived weakness of the church as the world defines weakness, as we are marginalized, as we are misrepresented. Remain humble. This is not the time to throw your weight around. Jesus' words to the Apostle Paul come to mind as I finish off Philadelphia here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. The exact opposite of the way the world sees things. Chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, and in verses 14 to 22, we finish off the seventh church. It's the message to Laodicea, or some would say, it, but actually there's two pronunciations here, Laodicea and Laodicea. And I'll probably interchange them, so I just don't want you to be confused. Okay, same church. The final message is to a church, and this is perfect for us. I just really think it is. To a church whose assessment of itself is we're wealthy and we're self-sufficient. Sound familiar? And Jesus' assessment begs to differ. He exhorts anyone who honors rugged individualism to rely on him rather than their own resources. Verse 13, 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, there, I just interchanged it. There you go. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So that's Jesus. I know your works, and you're neither hot or cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Yikes. Do not want to go to that church. And watch as we go through this as Jesus repeatedly uses images that this church in this city would totally identify with and understand. And he uses these images and what, they're in, what they have in their own society and what they think of themselves to speak words of tough love to this mediocre church. 
Laodicea had no reliable water system of their own. We know this from history. Um, to the north, there was a city called Heropolis who enjoyed these wonderful hot springs. You ever been in a hot spring? I've been in them in Colorado. Just amazing. In the middle of the winter. Um, not here, though. Um, but they're useful for healing, apparently. Uh, Colossae, to the um, east of Laodicea, um, who Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to. They had this cold, refreshing drinking water, hot or cold, both really useful. The Laodicea got its water from a spring about five miles to the south, and by the time that mineral-rich water had made the five-mile trip through the Roman aqueducts, which were a marvel of engineering, it had become lukewarm, and it was disgusting to drink. You ever wanted a nice cold drink on a hot day, and you, it was warm? It was like, ah, what? Jesus views both hot and cold as, as positive, useful. Just be one or the other. Lukewarm is nauseating. And the apathetic complacency of the believers in this church <clears throat> literally make Jesus want to vomit. I mean, wow. Spit out this unsatisfying liquid. Get it out of my mouth. It's like in Jeremiah chapter 24, the first 10 verses, where God's children, His people Israel, are compared to rotten food. These are not good illustrations. We should turn and run. Why? How do people get like this? Verse 17, you, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with being rich and prospering. God gives that to many people. But here's what they say and I need nothing. That's the problem. Hello, America. Jesus is talking to us. Pick up the phone. <laughs> Turn on the TV. Switch on the radio. Laodicea served as the leading banking center for the region. It was well known for its manufacturing of garments that were made out of this soft black wool. It was home to a famous medical school specializing in the treatment of eye diseases. They had all that, and they knew it. Verse 17, Jesus says, You have all this, not realizing that you are wretched. You're pitiable. You got the money, but you're poor. You got the eye center, but you're blind. You got the black wool industry, but you're naked. In verse 18, look at this, I counsel you. It could be translated, I've got some advice for you. Isn't this what every believer wants to hear? Counsel from the lips of Jesus Christ to their present situation? Jesus, just tell me what to do. Give me, give me your advice. If you would only just speak to me. Well, he has, and he is. And this is what he says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can be rich. Gold wealth of this world is not where it's at. Perhaps there's also a reference here to discipline through refining fire of trials. And white garments, get them from me so that you may clothe yourself. 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Physical nakedness covered by expensive clothing is nice. But a bigger deal is being clothed in purity and righteousness, which we've learned through these letters is what the white clothing represents. Washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And live that way. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They need more than the famous powder that is called a Phrygian powder that was a, made there and manufactured there, which was a, a, a salve for the eyes, especially for blindness. They needed more than that powder to cure their blindness. It wasn't a physical problem. They had a spiritual problem, and they need only the kind of ointment that Jesus Christ can provide. Why? What do they need to see? They need to see their true spiritual condition. They need a spiritual checkup. They need to see more of Him and less of themselves. The city claims financial self-sufficiency. The church in the city boasts spiritual independence. They are both confusing, greatly confusing, material prosperity, economic well-being, and comfort, and medical care with spiritual health and security and contentment. Let's never think that our abundance in this country is always connected to our faithfulness. It isn't. Verse 19. Now, <clears throat> Jesus says, those whom I love, I rep reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. How ironic that the ruler of God's creation, Jesus Christ, is shut out from the joys of sharing a meal with his own creation. Isn't that ironic? And it's due to the creation's prideful self-sufficiency about stuff that they actually, actually received from him in the first place. We are messed up, right, human beings? Note to self also, this verse, this verse 20, is not a salvation verse. It's not a repent of sin for salvation verse for unbelievers. It's a repent of sin for renewed fellowship verse for believers. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Whoa, wait, back up. What? Let's just pause for a moment and let that image, let that promise sink into our, our thick skull, maybe a hard heart. This reigning with Jesus Christ in the future kingdom of God, it appears all over Scripture. Elsewhere, it's in, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in 2 Timothy, but it becomes really prominent, very prominent in the book of Revelation. In, in, in verse 21, Jesus said, as I have also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne, I'm inviting you to come do, come do this thing with me. This is way beyond my imagination. Verse 22, he who has an ear... 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just, whoa. You know, Jesus loves his own purchased by his own blood church. And Jesus' love for his own means that he will not abandon complacent, self-reliant believers. Jesus' love means that he'll pursue them. But did you notice that that love of pursuit comes with correction and discipline? Why? That we would repent that we would return to the only reliable source for true life and truth. Jesus waits for you and I as believers to deny ourselves and then open up our hearts to renewed fellowship with Him. That, that, that table fellowship He talks about here, that's His illustration. Food and drink is His symbol. This shared meal that he's referring to was reserved for intimate friendships. Um, in the ancient world, they were a, a time, a valued time uh, for fellowship. Um, it was extremely meaningful and productive. We are taught in our day and age to always be on the go, to not stop, to not take the time. We're, we're, ta- we're taught to pour our time and our energy into causes into um, more important investments like entertainment, uh, homes, cars, education, and, of course, most of all, work. And we only seem to come to God and need His presence when tragedy occurs. And then we call out, and we're all, we're all about it. These words from Jesus illustrate the subtly and the power of forgetting God usually because of affluence. I know there are some of you who have learned this lesson. For some, it's been a very difficult lesson. For a lot of us in this room, we're still learning this lesson. But I know some of you have learned it, and you joyfully make do with what you have. And there's this joy about you regardless of the circumstances. You have been gifted by God into this church family to keep us on track, to keep us enlightened and aware of the dangers that can be associated with pursuing wealth over God. The American dream and the Christian faith are fundamentally different stories. They're different stories about what is real. They're different stories about what really matters and what is true. And I'm reminded in the flurry of this harsh rebuke to the Laodicean Christians that it's easy to miss verse 19 because verse 20 is so wonderful. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's a window into Jesus Christ's heart. He rebukes and he disciplines. Why? Because he loves. In our culture, love is often portrayed as nothing more than uh, sentimental support for another person. But people need someone to come into their lives who really loves them, 
and loves them enough to speak difficult truth into their life. That's real love. And when people are hurting and when people are broken and they're aware, they've, God's made them aware of their need from Him, Jesus speaks kindly and compassionately to them and they respond. But when people are bent on self-reliance, Jesus shocks them with, with, with rebuke and, and discipline in order that they might recognize the Word and their need of God. He doesn't rebuke in order to destroy a relationship. He rebukes in order to make our fellowship all the more intimate. Many believers, many of us, have tried to live life in their own strength. Can I get a witness? Go ahead, do it. It's good. Confession is good for the soul. And when we do that, and some of you have told me your stories. I, I really appreciate it. We fail miserably. This image of Jesus continuously knocking on the door of our life stands as a powerful message. He's been there all along. Child of God, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Maybe through this communion we're going to celebrate together right now. Maybe through communion, as Jesus said, it's a what? It's a remembrance of me. A remembrance of me. Would you prepare to take the bread and we'll take it all together as one?